mode. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today here on CPA Academy. This is Jason Bookman. I'll be your moderator for today's session. And I'm glad you are all here for CPE webinar on how the IRS reconstructs income in tax fraud cases. And you are all in for a treat. We have Mike DeBliss, who's going to be presenting for you over the next 90 minutes or so. And before we get going, I just want to go through a couple of quick technical checks, a little bit of housekeeping, make sure that everyone knows how to get credit, make sure that everybody can see and hear. So for those of you who haven't already done so, go ahead and pop open the GoToWebinar questions panel. Should be docked right over on the right side of your screen. Let me know in there that you can see the slides. Let me know you can hear my voice. And while you're in there, let me know where you're listening in from. And I see a lot of our CPA Academy veterans have already gone over there. I see people checking in from Kansas, Boston, Texas, Georgia, Florida. Welcome, everybody. So glad you're all spending part of your day with us here. And of course, if anyone's having any trouble seeing or hearing throughout the webinar, please let me know in this questions panel. I'll do the best I can do to get the troubleshooting done quickly and put your focus back where it needs to be. And now a little bit of housekeeping regarding CPE. For those of you who are here for CPE credit, today's course qualifies for one CPE credit and one CE credit. And in order to earn that credit, you have to be logged into the webinar for at least 50, or no, excuse me, for 75 minutes out of the 90 minutes of today's webinar and answer the poll questions. Polls will pop up on your screen periodically. You'll have about a minute or so to answer the poll by clicking your response and then clicking the submit button on that poll question. Um, those of you here for IRS CE credit, the enrolled agents on the call will be processing CE credit at a later date with the IRS, but everyone here for CPE credit should see that in their CPA Academy accounts by the end of the day today. And that'll be available for everyone, along with an archive recording of today's webinar and a copy of the handouts. Uh, Thomas says for one and a half CPE, that is correct. This course qualifies for one and a half CPE credits. This will only qualify for one CE credit, however. And that will just about do it for, oh, I forgot one very important thing. Handouts. Those of you who haven't already done so, go ahead over to the handouts section of the GoToWebinar control panel. You'll be able to download a copy of the handouts to follow along with at home or to refer back to in the future. And now that I have gotten through the housekeeping, I'm going to step aside and turn our presentation over to Mike DeBliss. So Mike, please say hi to everyone. Hi, everyone. And thank you very much, Jason, for uh, the introduction and for having me. Um, this is a topic uh, that um, I find very enthralling and that's um, very interesting and I'm really excited to be able to share it with you. Um, it doesn't get a lot of um, attention um, and it's unfortunate because these days um, the IRS um, does use a lot of diff a lot of varying methods to reconstruct uh, gross income. And um, I just noticed uh, some of you might uh, might have been keeping track of this. Um, the uh, this this presentation actually falls two weeks from the day of the anniversary of um, Al Capone being sentenced to prison for tax evasion. Um, and that happened, of course, um, many decades ago, back in 1931. But um, the exact date, I believe, was October 17th, 2018. Um, so we are uh, actually, um, you know, uh, close uh, in time to uh, that date. So uh, it's uh, the timing is uh, practically perfect. So a little bit about me. I um, maintain a boutique practice in uh, tax law, 
and I've been practicing tax law now for nearly 10 years. Um, and I have to tell you, um, tax for me is just a uh, just a wonderfully uh, challenging area of the law. Um, I love uh, delving into the Internal Revenue Code, so I'm a bit of a bookworm in that respect. Um, but because this is such a broad topic, it can sometimes feel like you're drinking water out of a fire hydrant. And by no means do I want to overwhelm you with so much information that you leave this presentation with your head spinning in circles. What I would like to do, however, is um, you know, have you leave the presentation with four or five things that you might be able to put to use in your practice. Um, and so that's my goal. And um, also, if you have any questions, please feel free to um, you know put them into the um, the uh, question and section. And I'll do my best if I can address them during the presentation to respond uh, by email to them. So the way, whoa, sorry about that, everyone. Um, that was something that Jason and I actually uh, thought might happen. Um, so we're going to get right back into the slideshow here. Um, I'm going to give you some background information on um, on, on uh, tax evasion, and uh, that's where we're going to start here. So in all criminal cases, the government has the burden of proving each element of the offense beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, in tax evasion, there are three core elements. And uh, these are the elements that the government has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. A, that there was a substantial tax deficiency. B, an affirmative attempt to evade tax. And C, willfulness. Um, just so I don't leave you hanging here, um, I'm going to give you a little bit of background information on each of, the, each of these elements. So substantial, uh, when it comes to tax deficiency, I think we all um, you know, have a basic and rudimentary understanding of what is meant by a tax deficiency. Uh, that is simply the amount that the um, that the taxpayer uh, reports versus the amount that the IRS believes that the taxpayer owes. Um, the difference between those two figures is a tax deficiency. But what is this term substantial? It's a little bit misleading because if we use our own layman's um, definition of it, we could get into trouble. So what we do is we turn to uh, how the courts have interpreted substantial. Because remember now, we are in a federal court in a criminal tax prosecution. Uh, so it's very important to distinguish that from being in tax court where we're dealing with a civil tax matter. Substantial is a fact-specific inquiry that's left up to the jury, which, believe it or not, um, you know, has to employ its everyday meaning of this word. In the Third Circuit, um, the Third Circuit Court of Appeals has also approved a definition of the term. And the definition that it employs is whether the amount is substantial turns on whether under the surrounding circumstances, the amount of the deficiency would be significant to an ordinary person. And so it's not very useful, uh, this definition, but nonetheless, this is what we're left with um, from case law. Now, if substantial means more than noticeable, we're probably talking somewhere around 15 or, per, or 20 percent in additional taxes. And this is significant because um, more times than not, people will come to me and I'm sure that your clients have come to you with questions about how much underreporting 
um, you know, does it take before the IRS makes a referral to CI? That question comes up time and time again. And there are some ballpark figures that I've added in this slideshow that we'll discuss a little later on in terms of um, underreporting and what type of figures will uh, jump on the IRS's radar and stick out like a red herring. Affirmative attempt to evade tax. Um, in an analysis borrowed from criminal conspiracy laws, the government first has to prove that the taxpayer formulated an intention or scheme to evade the tax, and second, that the taxpayer committed at least one overt act in furtherance of that scheme. Now, because we are dealing with um, elements of a federal tax offense, every word has significant meaning here. And uh, when it comes to these phrases, intention or scheme to evade the tax and overt act in furtherance of that scheme, the way we really get a handle of, the, of them is by looking at examples that uh, the circuit courts have uh, fleshed out, uh, meaning cases that have come before the district courts and have been decided and then appealed. And we will oftentimes turn to the opinions um, that have been written by the by the Circuit Court of Appeals to determine what examples uh, would rise to the level of, for example, an overt act. What type of conduct would be considered an intention or scheme to evade the tax? As my um, criminal tax law professor once said um, so eloquently, um, we can't open up the taxpayer defendant's head to see what they were thinking at the exact moment in time that the alleged uh, crime was committed. Instead, what we have to look at is the conduct, the outward actions of the person. And so that, of course, um, triggers what we call badges of fraud. And badges of fraud, for all intents and purposes, are the outward conduct that, um, uh, that we use to determine whether the taxpayer formulated the intention or scheme to evade the tax. And we'll get into some of that later on in the presentation. Willfulness. This is an elusive term. Um, my tax law professor always liked to uh, compare willfulness to a chameleon, uh, which changes in tone and color according to the Internal Revenue Code section involved and the circumstances. There is a textbook definition for willfulness, and it's a short definition which can be misleading. It's on it. It you can, as you can see here, it's an intentional violation of a known legal duty. And I will tell you that that definition or that phrase is loaded. Uh, we literally have to go word by word to understand um, how the courts have interpreted each um, word in this definition. And um, intentional, uh, known, legal, and duty are all terms of art. Now, as far as the burden and standard of proof goes, um, in civil cases, the burden of proof is on the taxpayer. So if we were in tax court um, dealing with a civil tax controversy, uh, the burden would be on the taxpayer. But in the criminal realm, the government bears the burden of proof. And that goes for everything from sophisticated white-collar crimes like uh, tax evasion to street crimes like burglary or robbery. The prosecutor always has the burden of proving each and every element of the offense beyond a reasonable doubt. So the, the question becomes one of what does this 
reasonable doubt um, mean? And it has been defined for us in case law. It's uh, defined as a doubt based upon reason and common sense after careful and impartial consideration of all the evidence. It's proof of such a convincing character that jurors would be willing to rely upon it without hesitation and in the most important of their own affairs. I like how one federal court um, uh, went beyond this definition to say um, that to, to actually compare the uh, reasonable doubt to percentages. And uh, one federal court judge actually said it's about 80% certain, um, 80% certainty. So it's not 100% certainty um, that uh, the element has been proven, but instead 80%. But that's still a very high percentage. And so um, this is not something that we can shake a stick at. Um, the the founders of the country and uh, the uh, founders and the writers of the Constitution were very, um, very concerned about uh, the presumption of innocence and about um, people being wrongfully accused and, God forbid, wrongfully convicted of a crime. And that's why this is enshrined in our Constitution. We have the presumption of innocence and we have such a high burden that the prosecutor has to meet in order to um, in order to prove their case. As for reasonable doubt, the Third Circuit has approved the following instruction. A reasonable doubt is not a whim. It's not a speculation or suspicion. It's not an excuse to avoid the performance of an unpleasant duty. And it is not sympathy. Now, there's two aspects of the burden of proof, and um, now we're getting closer to the uh, various methods. Um, so, uh, again, this is background information that's going to help to put the methods that we begin to talk about for reconstructing income into um, an easy-to-understand um, way. And so the first burden of proof is the risk of non-persuasion, which is also considered the burden of persuasion. And um, the second aspect of the burden of proof is the burden of production. Um, as with anything else, it's important to distinguish between these two as the distinction impacts the outcome of the case. So the risk of non-persuasion doesn't shift. It starts out on the government and it remains on the government. The burden of production, on the other hand, can shift with respect to particular issues in the case. The um, And this, again, just... Uh, recaptures what was just said, that the overall burden of persuasion never moves away from the government. It's um, always there on the government, but the burden of production sometimes shifts. So initially, the government has the burden of production as well, because there has to be sufficient evidence to convince the jury that the defendant is guilty. This shift occurs in, in income reconstruction cases. So we have an example here. Um, and by 7201, um, that is simply the section of the code for tax evasion. So we're, we have a 7201 tax evasion um, of assessment case. The government shows that Adam omitted 100,000 of taxable receipts from his return. So we have a situation where the um, alleged uh, defendant in a case underreported $100,000 of gross income. And so the issue is whether this proves beyond a reasonable doubt that Adam owed tax on an additional 100000 of income and thus committed tax evasion. Well, by the looks of it, um, you might think 
Yes, he did because he omitted $100,000 of taxable receipts. So um, by itself, however, this is insufficient to prove that there was additional tax due and owing. Remember, we're in the criminal context right now and not a civil one. Why is that so? Well, it's theoretically possible that Adam had unreported deductible expenses that either completely offset the omitted income or offset it enough that the resulting tax was no longer material and therefore was insufficient to sustain a tax evasion charge. So I realize that what we're dealing with here is a little nuanced and uh, might be a little unfamiliar um, because at uh, first blush, you might say, well, he omitted $100,000 of taxable receipts. And um, how can that not be tax evasion? But when dealing with a tax crime, the taxpayer defendant is able to raise a number of defenses. And um, that is especially true when it comes to tax evasion. And as discussed here, it's possible that a forensic accountant might be able to, uh, through some digging, um, discover some unreported deductible expenses that, as uh, discussed here, either completely offset the omitted income or, and this is very important to understand, offset it enough that the resulting tax deficiency was no longer material. By material, we mean no longer substantial enough to be worthy of a criminal tax prosecution. And uh, what, what those words mean are exactly what they mean. If the deductions were enough to offset the unreported gross income, then it's possible that the assistant U.S. attorney might drop the case altogether because the amount of tax due and owing isn't enough to bring the case forward to trial. And it would be considered in some cases a waste of um, a waste of very precious resources to prosecute a taxpayer defendant who, um, at the end of the day, only owes a deficiency of, say, $20,000, $25,000. Obviously, the higher the tax deficiency, the more um, the more the government uh, sinks its teeth in and digs their heels in and insists upon, um, you know, a, uh, you know, turning it into a criminal case. There's also this whole notion of the deterrent effect um, and the fact that the government wants to send a strong message to the rest of the public not to engage in this type of nefarious conduct. And you can imagine the blowback that the government would have and has had in the past if they were to um, single out an individual who um, had a tax deficiency of like $25,000 and spent six weeks trying a case over an amount that was that small. Um, that usually leaves a bad taste in the um, in the mouths of the general public, and the government, um, as a result, tends to steer away from cases like that. The ones that become most um, uh, most uh, interesting for the government and the most um, 
you know, and that gives them the most uh, appetite are the ones where the tax deficiency is over $50,000 or the amount of unreported gross income rather is in the six figures and the amount of tax deficiency exceeds uh, $50,000. Uh, that's typical. That's typically the threshold number these days. However, uh, that by no means is a black letter rule. Uh, so the rule here that we come up with is that the mere proof of unreported income is insufficient to establish additional tax liability. Now, what if Adam remains silent and doesn't suggest additional deductions or credits? Must the government go out of its way and investigate every possible deduction? No, absolutely, 100% no. The Internal Revenue Code contains hundreds of deductions and credits, and it's not the government's duty to find uh, all of the deductions that Adam could have taken but didn't take to offset that unreported amount of gross income. Instead, it would be up to um, Adam's legal team. And that's why in these cases, the taxpayer typically or the lawyer typically will hire a forensic accountant under an arrangement that is known as a Covell agreement. Um, and that's something that um, we are not going to delve into in this presentation. But um, the way it works essentially is that the Covell accountant will, you know, uh, go through all of the tax records and will do the uh, pick and shovel work of determining whether there were other deductions that um, were not were never taken that could have offset that unreported gross income. And so this is just, um, you know, digging into the weeds a little bit more to drive this point home. The government doesn't have to say we investigated whether there is a child credit. There's no child credit available. We investigated whether Adam had more medical and dental deductions than were claimed on the return. But there are no 213 deductions. And we looked at Adam's business and didn't find any accelerated depreciation deductions under 168. The government does not have that obligation. And so, um, you know, as I mentioned, the government doesn't have to negate every possible deduction or credit. It's not part of their burden uh, of production to do this. Instead, once the government shows that there is unreported gross income, the burden of production shifts. And this is what uh, I was um, getting at earlier about the shifting burden of production. This is where it would shift to the defendant to identify additional offsetting deductions. Um, in this case, the defendant must indicate at least some basis for believing that these deductions exist. As you can imagine, um, you know, the taxpayer defendant in a criminal prosecution, um, you know, will probably want to raise every deduction, even if it um, has no rational basis. But that is improper because there has to be some basis for believing that these deductions exist. And again, that's yet another reason why a forensic accountant is brought in, um, you know, to uh, make a case for how the deductions um, were applicable for this taxpayer. So assuming Adam can produce evidence that he had expenses and deductions, which reduced the tax to the point that it was no longer substantial, the government's case must fail unless it can rebut Adam's version of events. Um, because again, the key term here is substantial, substantial tax due and owing, um, not insubstantial, not inconsequential, not um, low. 
Um, and again, this is for reasons that we discussed uh, before. The government has scarce resources and they cannot take every case where there's unreported gross income and um, you know a tax deficiency to trial. Uh, they can't refer or they can't refer every one of those cases to um, a an, an assistant U.S. attorney or deal with it themselves in Homeland Tax in Washington. They have to pick and choose their cases due to the scarce resources, and they also they oftentimes want to send the loudest message to the taxpayer public as possible, and so that's why they sink their teeth into cases where the unreported gross income is in the six-figure range, and the tax deficiency is um, in that range as well. And uh, they oftentimes like to make examples out of celebrities, out of business owners, out of business professionals. Uh, this all, uh, while it might seem a little um, material and it might seem uh, sophomoric, um, this is all part of uh, their uh, publicity. Um, you know, and it's and it's all uh, kosher uh, because it's designed as a deterrent uh, for the rest of the public not to engage in this type of activity. Hey, Mike. Yes. Is it okay if we jump to a poll question quickly? Absolutely. All right. I'm going to go ahead and get poll question number one launched. That should be available on everybody's screen now. There are only going to be four poll questions for this hour and a half session. So I just want to make sure that we have ample time for everyone to get their poll responses in. Everyone who is logged in for CPE credit will be issued one and a half CPE credits if you answer three or more poll questions over the 75 minute minimum login time required for a session like today. But we're going to go ahead and leave this poll question open long enough to get a majority of responses in. Of course, if anybody wants to ask Mike any questions, please make sure you ask those in the questions panel of the GoToWebinar control panel. And we are approaching a majority of responses. So I'm going to go ahead and start closing this poll question down. Mike, I'll let you know when your slides are visible for everybody again. Oh, yep, slides are up. Super. There we go. Ah, uh, I really apologize about this. Um, we, <laughs> okay, so let me just get back. Great. Thank you so much, uh, Jason. Um, so basically, um, just piggybacking on this example, um, and this, the beauty of this example is that this is so practical that it actually gives you the bird's eye view of what's going on here and how uh, procedurally the burden shifts. So let's assume uh, here that Adam has some basis for believing that additional offsetting deductions exist. In that case, the burden would shift back to the government to negate these asserted additional deductions. Ultimately, it's up to the jury to decide who made the more convincing case. Um, as my tax, uh, tax um, professor once said, it's like a dance. And um, it truly is, uh, if you think about it from a very uh, primitive uh, point of view. It's um, the, um, the taxpayer that is basically, um, you know, uh, serving um, on a, uh, you know, serving the tennis ball up on the court to the government, um, and that tennis ball is the offsetting deductions that he or she believes uh, were not taken and that should be factored in. And then 
the government uh, getting that serve and uh, looking at it and, and saying, no, these uh, these deductions are inappropriate and, um, you know, inapplicable to this taxpayer and negating them by serving the tennis ball back to the taxpayer. And then the tax and then the tennis ball actually lands in the lap of the jury because it's up to the jury to decide who made the more convincing case. Summary, the risk of non-persuasion starts out on the government and ends on the government, oops, I'm sorry, and ends on the government. And, oh, we keep losing these. And uh, so the burden of uh, going forward starts on the government, uh, may shift to the defendant, and then may shift back to the prosecution. And theoretically, in a criminal tax prosecution, there could be further shifts. So now, we jump into this, um, these different methods of proof. And so this section addresses the means or theories by which the government attempts to prove the tax due and owing element of section 7201. And th this is a fascinating um, uh, area because um, as many of you know, the government um, you know, whips up uh, gross income um, you know, in unconventional ways. And we're gonna delve into that. Uh, these methods may be used either during the government's case in chief or at sentencing. Under the sentencing guidelines, the most important consideration is the amount of tax loss. Uh, the tax loss number is uh, typically what triggers the sentencing of a defendant in a criminal tax case. Generally speaking, and this is very general, the larger the tax loss, the greater the period of incarceration for the convicted defendant. So you can envision why the tax loss number is uh, such a critical element of the sentencing stage for a defendant convicted of one or more tax crimes. As unsettling as it might be, the government can attempt to prove for sentencing purposes a larger amount of tax liability than it attempted to prove at the guilt or innocence stage. And I will tell you that as a criminal uh, tax defense attorney, um, this really gets my goat because at the end of the day, um, the uh, sentencing judge can take into consideration a larger amount of tax liability stemming from one or more tax crimes that the defendant may have been acquitted of at trial. And the reason for that is because when the judge uh, hands down his sentence, the judge is using a standard lower than beyond a reasonable doubt. The judge is using the standard of by a preponderance of the evidence. So to the extent that the judge feels that the government made a compelling enough case to prove by a preponderance of the evidence that the defendant, say for example, failed to file a tax return. And yet, um, even, even though the jury came back with a not guilty verdict on that count, the uh, judge under a preponderance of the evidence standard can still take into consideration the um, tax uh, liability associated with failing to report that tax return and include that in the tax um, in the amount of tax liability. And um, so that can actually drive up the tax loss number and result in a, um, in a period of incarceration. And so that's why there's so much outrage by the defense bar 
that um, you know that uh, that figure can be used by the judge. Um, it just feels wrong, especially since it could be the difference between whether the defendant gets home detention, probation, or a lengthy period of incarceration. Prosecutors can use a direct method to either establish unreported income or, in a few other cases, to rebut a taxpayer's claims regarding expenses and deductions. Here are a few scenarios. In scenario number one, the government might assert, it's right here, we can point to exactly what the problem is on this return. This deduction was claimed at $40,000, but it's, but it's legitimately only a $5,000 item. We can prove a $35,000 overstatement of deductions. And what you might be inferring here is how important uh, the tax return is in a criminal tax prosecution. And by the way, it's fully admissible in, um, in the case in chief. Um, so it's not something that, um, you know, that the defense team can um, attempt to suppress from evidence. Uh, it is fair game uh, for the prosecution to introduce in their case in chief. In scenario number two, we have a taxpayer who got $75,000 worth of receipts from person A. These receipts were taxable, but the taxpayer never reported them on his tax return. The IRS's argument, very straightforward. We can identify precisely where it is on the false return and how it gave rise to the additional tax liability due and owing. Typically, uh, what the government will do in these cases it'll, is that it'll compare the claimed or reported amount on the tax form to the actual receipt. And ipso facto, it effectively meets both the burden of production and the burden of persuasion because it's almost impossible for a defendant to explain away direct proof of this type. So direct, the direct method is um, hands down the method that the government likes to use the most. Um, and for the reasons uh, that are here, they can literally show um, the, uh, they can literally uh, put the tax return on the uh, projector and, um, you know, blow it up to uh, be 100 times its original size and show the amount that was self-reported by the taxpayer. And then they can, one by one, taking their time and, um, uh, you know, being very deliberate about it, show all of the receipts and um, add up all the receipts and then, you know, show that figure on a large projector in the federal courtroom and compare it uh, to the amount that was self-reported on, on the 1040 return by the taxpayer. And that is so compelling that, um, you know, it's very difficult for the defense to rebut and to explain away this direct proof. In other cases, um, these receipts can fill in the blanks in an, in an allegedly fraudulent return. So as we discussed, the government greatly prefers direct methods to indirect methods. Um, and the way it starts is with the taxpayer's return. When the taxpayer has filed a return for the year in question, the government will introduce it. In doing so, the IRS will use the taxpayer's admitted income as a baseline. Uh, for those interested in knowing why or how it's admissible, um, 
I understand why you would ask yourself that question because um, in evidence, uh, we are always taught that everything, every, um, every piece of tangible evidence um, is inadmissible unless you can point to a rule that makes it admissible. So if I was um, teaching evidence right now, uh, the very first thing I would tell my students is that while tax returns are routinely admitted at a trial, at a criminal trial, um, there has to be a rule that allows it to be admissible because um, the government can't just um, you know, willy-nilly come into court with a tax return and start um, publishing it to the jury on the projector. They, they actually have to prove uh, what rule of evidence allows them to introduce the tax return. And it's considered hearsay. Um, it's an out-of-court statement that's being used to prove the truth of the matter asserted. Um, so for hearsay purposes, the return is deemed an admission. An admission is an exception to hearsay, and that's what allows the tax return to be admissible and to be um, uh, and to be admissible and to be allowed to be published to the jury. Uh, we have some examples here. Example number one, if the return reflects 40,000 of gross income, the government can treat that amount as a given. The defendant may later state, oops, I was wrong. I didn't have 40 grand, only 30 grand, but that's going to be a tough road to hoe because taxpayers typically don't overstate their income on the return. So you can see how it really boxes um, you know, boxes the taxpayer in when the government uh, refers directly to the tax return. In example number two, if the taxpayer wants to dispute additional unreported income by asserting additional deductions, the fact that these additional deductions weren't on the return constitutes an admission that there weren't any additional deductions. Um, so that kind of puts the taxpayer between a rock and a hard place um, because uh, there is, again, this, um, uh, this uh, admission that if the additional deductions weren't there, that, um, they, that there weren't any additional deductions. Um, notwithstanding the fact, however, uh, taxpayer, uh, taxpayers are permitted to assert additional uh, deductions at the trial. Criminal numbers, sentencing numbers, and civil numbers. Um, it's important to distinguish between the three of these. Um, these numbers diverge uh, substantially. Uh, we've already discussed a little bit about um, the difference between them. Uh, the government will be the most conservative where it has the highest burden of proof. So when the government is attempting to prove the elements of the tax crime in their case in chief, they're going to be very conservative with the amount that they claim is due and owing. They only want to be able to um, use numbers that they have um, that they have a very strong evidence to prove. They don't want to, there to be any shakiness or any uh, doubts to the numbers that they uh, allege were due and owing. So in their case in chief, the government will be very conservative with the uh, loss that they claim 
um, you know, was uh, suffered um, as a result of the evasion. So it's not unusual for the government to use different amounts during the guilt, innocent, and sentencing phases. And remember, um, the reason why the government is conservative with the figures in their case in chief is because that is a stage of the case where they have the highest burden beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, so at trial, uh, this is the way it might look at trial. There might be more unreported income than what the government asserts in the guilt or innocent phase of the trial. For example, the government might think or believe that there is 110,000 of unreported income, but 30,000 of that is a toss-up and could go either way. Why? Well, very simply, there might not be enough evidence to prove evasion of 30,000. In that case, the government will assert only 80,000 during the guilt or innocent phase. Again, they want to pick, they want to use the number that they have the most rock solid, hard evidence to prove. If they were to be a little bit on the greedy side and to um, assert that there's $110,000 of unreported income and uh, that $30,000 easily could have gone the other way in the sense that there could be deductions that offset it, then the government is injecting a little bit of doubt there because the jury might look at that and you know, simply think that, well, you know, there's 30,000 that's doubtful. So how can we believe that the other 80,000 that the government is claiming was unreported is as rock solid as they claim it to be? So it can come back and hurt the government. And that's why the government will be very conservative with these figures. The government, as I right. mentioned, they typically introduce rock solid, hard. Right. Oh, sorry, Jason. Sorry about that. I just wanted to jump in and make sure we can get to a poll question quickly. Definitely. All right. I'm going to go ahead and launch poll question number two for everybody. Should be available on everybody's screen right now. I'm just going to go ahead and leave this open again long enough to get a majority of responses in. This is poll question number two that should be live on everyone's screen now because a myriad of you have been asking this in the questions panel. You need to be logged in again for 75 minutes out of the 90 minutes of today's webinar and answer at minimum three poll questions in order to receive full credit for today's session, full 1.5 CPE credits for today's webinar. And we're going to go ahead and leave this poll question open for a little bit longer. I want to make sure that everybody who is logging in has the opportunity to answer this poll question. We're going to leave this open for just a little bit longer. We are approaching about a minute of having the poll open and we are close to having about 95% of our audience checking in. So I am going to start closing this poll down. All right, poll is closed. Oh, and there's the slides and let's pull those back up. All right, good to go. Great, thank you, Jason. And, um, you know, just to put the meat on the bones of this, um, the reason why, once again, that the government wants to introduce the hard, unshakable evidence is because if there is a rumbling or a shaking, this tends to introduce reasonable doubt. And for this reason, the government usually selects a smaller number at the guilt or innocent stage. Uh, we have this theory under the law, um, false in one, false in all. 
And um, this kind of piggybacks on what we're talking about here as to why the government wants unshakable evidence in the form of the tax loss number. And the theory behind false and one, false and all, is that if a uh, witness at a criminal trial is caught in a lie and um, has done so uh, blatantly, um, that it offends the conscience of the court, the attorney, and it could be the prosecuting attorney or it could be the defense attorney, would make an application during the, during the uh, time that the jury instructions are um, being crafted for uh, the judge to read this instruction called false and one, false and all. And what that means is that uh, the judge um, can read to the jury at the time of the uh, reading of the jury instructions that um, because if you find that witness one um, uh, perjured himself or lied under oath as to X, Y, and Z, you can automatically infer that the rest of his or her testimony was also false. Now, as you can imagine, that is a bomb going off because if you had a witness that came in and, um, you know, and said something that was untrue or false, and yet uh, the rest of what they said was so damning and incriminating against your client that it uh, was enough to sink the ship, um, my God, as a defense attorney, you'll be salivating to try and get the judge to uh, grant that instruction. I'll be honest in telling you that it's very, it's seldomly, um, you know, it's seldomly allowed by the judge. Um, it was once uh, very often used, um, but now these days um, it's not used. And sadly, um, if 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 it does get read to the jury, it's usually because a defense witness has uh, falsified something under oath during their testimony. And so uh, what's good for the goose, I guess, is good for the gander. Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> so for this reason, the government selects a smaller number at the guilt or innocence stage. At the sentencing stage, okay, so now we move up to post-conviction where the defendant has been convicted. At the sentencing stage, the government goes for more. And in the example that I just gave you where there was $110,000 of unreported income, you bet you bet your pants that the government's going to go for the additional $30,000 at the sentencing phase. And that's because they are operating under a lower burden. And that's also because um, the tax loss number drives what the sentence um, is that the defendant serves. So it's easier for the prosecutor to prove the additional 30,000 of unreported income at the sentencing phase under the preponderance of evidence standard than it was for the government to prove that additional $30,000 in the case in chief where the standard was significantly higher beyond a reasonable doubt. And on the civil side, you bet your pants that the government will seek the maximum because um, the burden there is um, even less. To return to our friend Adam, the service might only establish 75,000 in unreported income during guilt or innocence because the evidence regarding the other $25,000 is a little shaky. Um, later, at the penalty phase, prosecutors can use the entire amount to maximize the criminal penalties against poor Adam. And as unfair as this might seem, it is um, 
it's uh, completely permissible under the sentencing uh, guidelines. In all criminal cases, if there's no smoking gun, and by smoking gun, I'm referring to the whole um, introduction, the whole dance that I referred to earlier between the tax return where the government flashes on its screen the amount of self-reported gross income that the defendant reported on their 1040 and then flashes on the screen the receipts for the gross receipts for the um, income um, that the defendant uh, failed to report. Okay, so that's what I would consider a smoking gun case in criminal uh, tax evasion. But in all criminal cases, um, there's not always going to be a smoking gun. And so the prosecutor has to rely on what we in the law refer to as circumstantial evidence. In those cases, the government may argue that there is circumstantial evidence which logically leads to the conclusion that the taxpayer's return is wrong, even though the government can't point to exactly what it is. The government can't, you know, put their mouse over the amount on the return and say that this amount is a gross understatement of reporting. Um, in these cases, the government has to use what's called an indirect method. Now, the indirect method is subject to heightened scrutiny. Um, it's, a, it's complicated and difficult to explain to juries, and because of their potential for mischief, appellate courts closely scrutinize indirect methods. So the chance of reversal on appeal is great. As you can imagine, an indirect method case is not the most appetizing case uh, for the government to bring in a criminal prosecution. Uh, therefore, they tend um, not to uh, prosecute these types of cases. There's a multi-step process here. The government has to establish the following. First, um, and th this is basically the uh, what I would refer to as the, um, the gate that the government has to um, pass through before they can convince the judge that an indirect method um, can be used in, um, in constructing the uh, unreported gross income. First, they have to prove that a direct method is not available or is unreliable. And by not available, that means that the taxpayer's books and records are unavailable. For example, the taxpayer never kept them or lost or destroyed them. By unreliable, what we're referring to here is that the taxpayer's books and records are available, but they're not reliable. Uh, for example, they contain errors galore. And so you know, this would all be fleshed out at a pretrial hearing before the judge. Um, so all of these things, the government would have to have evidence for. They can't just stand up in court and say, judge, the direct a direct method is not available or is unreliable. The judge will force the government to explain and to provide examples of why it's not available and why it's unreliable. And uh, you bet uh, you bet that the government's going to have to have concrete evidence um, and examples to support its claim that uh, the direct method is not available uh, or is unreliable. This barrier prevents prosecutors from ignoring hard evidence that may not be as damning in favor of circumstantial evidence that 
artful lawyers can doctor up. So what I'm referring to here is that sometimes uh, the government may want to fall back on circumstantial evidence, even though they have hard evidence, but that hard evidence is not as uh, compelling um, and as the circumstantial evidence is. And yet, uh, the government must, if they have the hard evidence, um, and if they have a direct method, uh, it's their uh, it's their obligation to rely on that and not to fall back on the circumstantial evidence. So this is basically the court holding the government's feet to the fire and insisting that they comply with the rules before um, the before the judge allows them to use the circumstantial evidence. Second, um, there has to be a likely taxable source for the unreported income. The government has to show some source from which the taxpayer was likely to have gotten the unreported income. So if we go back to the example with Adam, um, let's suppose that he had uh, reported 100000 of income from a consulting company in 2015 and nothing in 2016. If the judge determines that the prosecutors met both elements of this test and um, and that the government may use indirect evidence, there are five approved models. And these are known as the types of indirect methods. The first is the net worth method. The second is the expenditures method. The third is bank deposits and cash expenditures method. The fourth is percentage markup method. And the fifth is indirect methods to prove overstated deductions. And now we're going to delve into each one. These are um, attempts to demonstrate that the taxpayer had more taxable income than what was reported. And, um, you know, this is the net worth method. How does the government show this? By showing that the taxpayer had an increase in his net worth, an increase that could only have come from taxable income. The government establishes its case through the net worth method in the following steps. And it's very important that we hone in on every one of these steps because the judge is going to hold the prosecutor to these steps in its case in chief. The government establishes the defendant's opening net worth using cost basis. Typically, um, these are multiple tax years. The government shows at the beginning of the first prosecution year, and that's critical, at the beginning of the first prosecution year, what the defendant's net worth was. The net worth must be calculated for non-cash assets at cost basis, not fair market value. If the taxpayer's asset appreciates in value before a realizable event like the sale of the assets, the taxpayer does not have income. An unrealized appreciation is not taxable income. The government shows increases in net worth at the end of each of the years for the prosecution period. And then the government subtracts any known non-taxable receipts. The increase in net worth in any acquisition of new assets may have been financed by income that wasn't taxable. The government, of course, will have to prove willfulness directly or by inference. And so here we have some reasons why the government prefer, prefers to use the direct method over the net worth method. 
um, as and we've discussed some of these already, appellate courts are suspect of the indirect methods and will allow uh, their use only if the government has no other recourse and only if the method is applied rigidly. Uh, there aren't as many IRS agents uh, who are skillful enough in applying the indirect methods. Um, and by the way, these are not the reasons that I've conjured up. Uh, these are reasons that are um, that have been found uh, based on uh, research into this issue. Um, so I'm not arbitrarily, um, uh, you know, suggesting that the IRS agents are, you know, unskillful in this area. There, uh, these are statistics that, um, you know, that are um, based on uh, research um, and studies. What are some common defenses to these uh, net worth cases? The first is that the net worth increase shown by the government is not an increase at all because of the existence of substantial cash on hand at the starting point. Um, and that, if it, if that rings a bell, that's because it's known as cash hoard defense, which we're going to get into in a second. Second, um, defense is that the net worth increase is attributable to some non-taxable source. Third, is attacking the accuracy of the government's opening or closing net worth figure. And so these are the ways that defense counsel will um, attack the uh, government's uh, net worth method case. And uh, we're going to go into a little bit of detail for each of these. So first, the net worth increase shown by the government is not an increase at all because of the existence of substantial cash on hand at the starting point. Now, let me stop right here and preface this. Just as the government can't stand up in court and just uh, say that the um, that that we need to use an indirect method because there is no viable direct method, um, just as the government can't do that without providing proof as to why the direct method can't be used in the case, so too must the defense flesh out their defense. Um, with details and reasons and evidence uh, to support their defense. You cannot just arbitrarily raise a defense and, um, you know, run with it. Um, there has to be some evidence to back it up. So what's good for the goose is good for the gander. In this case, we're dealing with defense counsel who is raising the issue of a cash hoard. And so, one of the ways of establishing uh, number one is by putting the defendant on the stand, which is always uh, risky, um, but it doesn't have to be the defendant. It could be a witness um, in some cases, but nonetheless, in this example, we're dealing with the defendant who testifies, I had a cash hoard, which I had built up over pre-prosecution years and which I didn't spend until the prosecution period. That's what supports the increase in my net worth. I use the money from this cash hoard to buy these additional assets, not from unreported taxable income. That might be one way that this issue gets put into play. <clears throat> now, cash hoards are usually hidden inside <clears throat> underground PVC pipes in the backyard or inside mattresses, but at the end of the day, those are often wives' tales. Uh, they don't necessarily have to be um, the Tony Soprano 
uh, gripping narrative uh, that we're all used to seeing. Um, there are other potential sources of a cash hoard as well. There are non-taxable sources or taxable sources in years as to which the statute of limitations has uh, already expired. But nonetheless, the same um, idea applies as what we've discussed here, where the defense is alleging that they uh, that the defendant had this cash hoard, which had been built up over the pre-prosecution years and which were not spent until the prosecution period. Um, and that basically um, accounts for the increase in the net worth. Um, and the fact that the money was used from this hash court, hash, uh, cash hoard rather to buy additional assets um, during the prosecution period, um, you know, is, um, you know, is further proof that, um, you know, it was money that had been built up um, and accumulated during the pre-prosecution years. And it was not from any underreported gross income or unreported gross income rather during the prosecution years. Hey, Mike. Yep. Okay, to go to a third poll question. Absolutely. All right, we're going to go ahead and launch poll question number three. <coughs> Excuse me. Poll question number three is live. We're going to leave this open long enough to get a majority of responses in on this poll. So, of course, the quicker everyone votes, the quicker we'll be able to get back to the presentation. And everyone is voting very quickly on this poll, so we might be able to close it down a little early. But of course, I just want to leave it open long enough for everyone who is logged in to have the opportunity to answer the poll for CPE credit. So we're going to leave this open for just about maybe another 15 seconds or so. Everyone, please vote on this poll. This is the second to last poll question. There will be one final poll question following this one. And we're going to go ahead and leave this open just about 10 seconds longer. Okay, I'm going to start closing this poll down. And the slides should be, yep, back up. And let's pull the desktop back up. Excellent. All right, Mike, back to you. Great. Uh, so again, not to beat this issue to death um, and uh, not to uh, overindulge the Tony Soprano example, but uh, what we're dealing with is a situation where the taxpayer is arguing, hey, um, you know, I'm not denying that I spent, you know, a, um, a, a large sum of money during the prosecution period. And um, I'm not denying the fact that I spent more money during the prosecution period on items that uh, well exceeded my gross income that I self-reported this year. What I'm saying is that this money that I, or these items that I purchased came from money that I had accumulated during the pre-prosecution years. Uh, so what's significant here is what we're looking at and what the government is looking at is the prosecution year. And they are making the um, outlandish allegation, if you will, that uh, the defendant spent substantially more than what the defendant earned um, from their job. And so, um, you know, the argument goes, well, you know, how was the defendant able to um, purchase, you know, this uh, lavish 
um, you know, car, luxury car? How was this uh, defendant able to go on this cruise? How was this defendant able to, um, you know, go on this, um, you know, uh, exotic vacation, you know, when all of this, you know, well exceeded the amount of income that they earned from their job? And so the defense, uh, who's on the other side of the uh, court, you know, uh, basically hits that tennis ball back by saying, well, I'm not denying that this was the amount of money that I earned in this tax year. I'm not denying the fact that it was less than what I spent on all of these material items. However, what I am saying is that this money that I spent was from money that I had accumulated from years earlier than this period that the uh, government is looking at. And this was money that I had loose on hand that was lying around the house and that, you know, I didn't deposit in my bank account and that I just kept for a rainy day. Now, as you can imagine, it's a tough road to hoe when you are, uh, when the amounts uh, differ so uh, wildly. And that's why this is sometimes a difficult defense to raise, even though the uh, client is, um, you know, is chomping at the bit to raise it. And uh, we just discussed this already. There are other potential sources of a cash hoard, non-taxable sources, taxable sources in years as to which the statute of limitations has already expired. How does the government rebut the cash hoard defense? I've already um, given you some clues. The government has to prove a negative, that there was no cash hoard. And so what they might do is they might rely on admissions made by the taxpayer. Uh, they might also rely on financial statements given by the taxpayer to federal or state agencies. And by the way, when I talk about financial statements, I am not just limiting them to the ones that are most common. I'll also refer to uh, bankruptcy um, uh, disclosures as uh, part of financial statements as well. Reconstructing the taxpayer's income, this is another way of rebutting the cash hoard defense. Reconstructing the taxpayer's income from pre-prosecution years using tax returns and other information to show low amounts of prior income. If there isn't a lot of income listed on a prior year's return, the government can legitimately ask, where did the money come from? So if we go back to the example before where our uh, defendant, Adam, has purchased a Beamer and has gone to Hawaii and um, those expenses, uh, let's say, um, raised or th those expenses were $200,000. Let's just keep it very uh, simple. And let's say that Adam alleges that that $200,000 came from money that he, um, you know, had stored from er years earlier. Well, if the government, what the government would do in a case like that is go back to the periods where Adam alleges he earned the income and look at his tax returns for those periods. And to the extent that Adam earned uh, substantially less than the $200,000, or to the extent that he earned even that sum of money, uh, the government still has a compelling argument to make that there's no way in God's green earth that he could have used money from those earlier periods to finance these luxury and high-end items. Because even if he earned 
uh, $200,000 from the last tax year that he claims um, you know, was used to finance these vacations, how did he possibly support his family and pay his mortgage and pay the, you know, everything else, um, you know, with $200,000 of reported gross income while spending $200,000 the following year on lavish vacation and on a, be on a Beamer. So there's so many ways of rebutting it that it's got to be really, um, it's it's got to be such uh, a solid and compelling um, you know, the evidence has to be so solidly and compellingly in favor of the defense that it's not going to be laughed out of court. So, for example, if there isn't a lot of income listed on a prior year's returns, the government will legitimately ask, where, pray tell, did the money come from? And maybe the answer is non-taxable sources. Um, and that would probably be Adam's uh, best bet to fall back on if he gets um, caught between a rock and a hard place. But nonetheless, he has to identify who died and left him the money. Uh, if, for example, he's claiming that, um, you know, he it was an, an inheritance. Establishing a history that cast doubt on the idea that the taxpayer had cash lying around, such as a taxpayer filing bankruptcy or borrowing money. Uh, and I got to tell you, these cases are borderline on the absurd I mean, I have seen and read opinions that you just cannot imagine. And in one uh, case, um, and, th and this is what, uh, uh, what reminds me of it, the fact that the taxpayer made a bankruptcy filing, the taxpayer um, defendant in a criminal prosecution alleged that the cash hoard came from uh, an earlier tax year. Well, the government did its due diligence and found that the taxpayer had filed for bankruptcy in that same tax year. So how, pray tell, was the taxpayer able to, you know, use funds from a year in which they uh, reported bankruptcy or filed for bankruptcy to finance these uh, exotic vacations and this luxury um, sports car in a later year? Unless the defendant uh, falsified the bankruptcy return, which is yet another crime, bankruptcy fraud. So it, it's a very, as they often say, um, you know, uh, be very careful what you wish for. And um, you want to be very careful because you don't want to open up an investigation into yet another crime in order to um, somehow uh, plug a hole or provide a defense for a present crime that the defendant is charged with. I mean, God forbid. So an example here is, does a taxpayer have significant balances on his credit cards? If so, why? If the taxpayer had cash lying around, why didn't he use that cash to pay off the credit cards to avoid the uh, absurd and obscene amount of interest? Another example might be, and these are all questions that the government is going to raise. Uh, why did the taxpayer have to file bankruptcy if he had all of this cash lying around? Why did the taxpayer have to borrow money if he had all of this cash lying around? Why was the taxpayer living below the poverty level? Or why did, did the taxpayer file a low-income housing application? Or why did the taxpayer file for an offering compromise with the IRS or an installment agreement? if they had all of this money lying around in earlier tax years. All right. Uh, the net worth increase is attributable to some non-taxable source. Now, 
as um, as you're all aware, uh, there are a number of items in the code that are non-taxable uh, sources. We have gifts, inheritances, loans that might account for the newly acquired wealth. Uh, these items are non-taxable. An example, um, as you know, straightforward as it might be, is one where the taxpayer defendant's aunt or relative died and left him uh, with a sizable amount of income. Um, another situation might be a brother that gave the taxpayer uh, some money or a loan. Um, you want to, as defense counsel or as a forensic accountant for defense counsel, um, do your due diligence um, and not accept anything at face value to the extent that the taxpayer claims that they uh, received loans or an uh, inheritance or a gift from a family member or from a close friend, you want to make sure that uh, there's proof to substantiate that because you simply cannot make this assertion without backing it up with solid proof. Hey, Mike? Yep. Okay, if we go to the last poll. Absolutely. All right, this is going to be the fourth and final polling question. I'm just gonna go ahead and get it launched on everybody's screen. So again, this is the last opportunity for everyone who's logged into the webinar to answer a poll credit for CPE. Beyond this poll, there will be no further opportunities for anybody to, or for a poll question in order for anyone logged in to earn CPE. So please vote on this poll question. Make sure that you hit the submit button and we're going to leave this open long enough to get a majority of responses in. Again, I want to make sure that we have ample opportunity for everyone to answer this poll question in order to earn credit. I will leave this open for a full minute, as with the others. All right, I'm going to go ahead and close this poll question down. And yep, there's the screen, and let's pull the slides back up. Okay. All right. Great. So the government has no burden to negate this defense until the taxpayer puts it into play. Um, so it would be um, premature for the government to rebut a tax hoard uh, defense unless it was actually raised by the defendant. It's very similar in the sense that the government has no burden to find all the necessary deductions that the taxpayer could have taken but didn't take. Um, however, when they work up their case in chief, they might, um, you know, if a good prosecutor is, of course, going to look at the holes and the weaknesses in their case. And to the extent that, you know, defenses come to mind, they're going to keep those defenses in the back of their mind um, because they need to be ready for anything. Uh, nobody, especially um, an assistant U.S. attorney, wants to get ambushed with something for the very first time at trial. So they'll anticipate, but they have no legal duty or obligation to negate it unless it's actually raised by the defense. 
How much detail must the defense give the government and when? Well, they need to give the government this information with sufficient specificity and with sufficient timeliness. What that means is not on the eve of trial. And, um, you know, part of me, you know, while this seems very logical and very pragmatic uh, that you wouldn't, um, you know, drop a defense like this on the government in the 11th hour, um, sadly, the same isn't true for the government when it comes to turning over proffers from their special agents. Um, some of you might be aware that um, under the very lax rules of federal courts, um, special agents who come to testify, um, and they're you know, members of the FBI, um, they have to provide what's called a proffer um, or like a police report essentially to the defense. And under the case law, uh, they have no obligation, the prosecution that is, to turn it over until, believe it or not, two days before the witness actually testifies. And that puts a defense at a distinct disadvantage because naturally they're going to rely on a lot of things in the detective or in the special agent's police report to cross-examine the uh, special agent. And the less time that the defense counsel has to read the report and prepare, the less um, the less effective the cross-examination is going to be. So um, when it comes to defenses, the defense has an absolute obligation to raise it as early as possible or lose it. Um, and yet when it comes to proffers and police reports that are authored by special agents, the government has no obligation to turn those over um, until perhaps uh, two days before the uh, FBI agent actually testifies. So as unfair as that might seem, that is the case law that's been established and that we have to work under. Now, if the defense fails to do either, the government is relieved of its obligation to negate the item. <clears throat> In an example here of a net worth uh, defense, uh, we have an IRS investigation that shows the taxpayer had an opening year net worth of 50000 The taxpayer had a checking account with 50000 which was the only asset the IRS could locate. The net worth method conclusively proved that the taxpayer had 57000 of unreported income in the two-year period. The taxpayer's argument might be that the method is flawed because he had an opening net worth in the form of an inheritance that the IRS didn't identify or verify. Um, to flesh this out, one month before the opening date of the two-year period, uh, the taxpayer claims that he received a 50000 inheritance that was non-taxable. He went to Las Vegas, cashed it there, lost it all within the matter of a few days, had the taxpayer retained the 50 grand past day one of the two-year period, it might have accounted for enough of the indicated income that the government would not have pursued an invasion case on the 7,000 that remained. But because the cash had been spent prior to day one of the two-year period, the net worth method correctly indicated that the taxpayer had 57 grand of unreported income. The issue here is um, assume that the IRS could not exclude the possibility that the taxpayer held all of the cash on the critical opening date. Can the taxpayer's attorney affirmatively advise the IRS that the inheritance accounts for 50,000 of otherwise unaccounted for cash on the opening date? Well, 
first of all, let's back up and determine what the relevance is. The relevance of this is that it eliminates a net worth method as a means to obtain a conviction. Um, the answer here is that we can't say to the government, uh, your figures are wrong because you didn't include this 50,000 inheritance. Why? Well, misrepresenting a known false fact is a violation of 1001 um, in, our, in the code, uh, but the attorney could ask the special agent whether he considered the inheritance just one month earlier. Um, it's a suggestion, not a statement. I realize that it sounds a little, um, a little pretentious and a little underhanded, but um, again, it's not a statement, but a suggestion. And by asking this question, the attorney is merely implying that the money might account for some significant part of the otherwise um, indicated unreported income. Is that implication sufficiently close to a statement that defense counsel still has an ethical problem? Well, the reasoning here is that the defense has the right at trial to challenge the methodology used by the government to identify opening net worth. So the defense counsel should be able to ask the agent whether a significant item that should have been considered but wasn't um, could impact the government's application of the net worth method. And so it would not, um, you know, it would not lead to an ethical problem or a 1001 problem. Now, attacking the accuracy of the government's opening or closing net worth figure. This argument is straight up, you crunch the numbers wrong. Um, the example here is uh, the defense counsel arguing um, and the defendant uh, stating that the opening net worth I had was greater than you thought it was, so the difference between opening and closing net worth was less, or the closing net worth was less than what the government thought it was. So it could be either or. While the government might be able to prove with, um, these are some pitfalls inherent in the net worth method. While the government might be able to prove with reasonable accuracy an increase in net worth over a period of years, it often has difficulty in relating that income sufficiently to any specific prosecution year. That's why the government um, tends not to bring a single year indirect method case. In recognizing these inaccuracies of this approach, what do courts normally do? Well, judges approach these cases very, very carefully. Um, they approach them with the realization that these imprecise methods might ensnare innocent taxpayers in the coils of prosecution. Um, and so jury charges, the judges really, uh, really work to ensure that the jury charges are crystal clear and that they include a summary of the nature of the net worth method, the assumptions on which it rests, and inferences available both for and against the accused. Um, essentially, the judges go uh, above and beyond the call of duty to ensure that the jury charges explain the, um, this, these methods in explicit detail, as well as the uh, shortcomings of uh, these indirect uh, methods of proof. And they do this with an eye for ensuring that uh, the defendant gets a fair trial and that um, the jury completely understands 
um, what's going on because as we've all seen here, this can get very technical uh, when dealing with the indirect methods, especially the net worth method. Appellate court should be particularly vigilant to make sure that the trial judge did his job and that there wasn't an inappropriate conviction based on a faulty use of an indirect method. As we discussed earlier, um, these cases where the, that the government brings in uh, net worth method are, uh, are ripe for appeal. Uh, so to the extent that the defendant is convicted uh, based on a, an indirect method such as net worth, um, defense counsel is usually quick to appeal the conviction to the appellate court um, because of how um, mistrusted uh, these methods are and because of how many um, you know, holes there are and assumptions there are in uh, proving it. Now we have expenditures method. <clears throat> Uh, I realize that we're getting a little bit low on time, but um, I would still like to cover this topic, and I think we have uh, sufficient time to uh, get through it. This is also known as a source and application of funds method. Um, if the taxpayer wasted his substance um, with uh, riotous living, to borrow a phrase from the story of the prodigal son, uh, the service cannot use the net worth method and must convince the jury that the taxpayer spent so much money that there must have been an additional income somewhere. The difference here is that if the taxpayer uses additional <clears throat> unreported income to acquire assets, then the net worth, <clears throat> excuse me, no, net worth method applies. But what if the taxpayer doesn't acquire assets but instead spends it on high living, not involving any fixed or um, or movable assets. In that case, the government will employ the expenditures method. The government essentially establishes opening and closing net worth just like it would in the net worth method. It needs to show that expenditures did not come from drawing down previous assets. Um, so it almost in infers uh, that the government is expecting the defense to raise the argument that there were assets that were um, drawn down from previous tax periods. The government has to show that the amount of expenditures, uh, must show rather the amount of expenditures made by the taxpayer during the year. The government also has to deal with non-taxable sources here. So as you can see, uh, there is a lot of work that the government must do in order to uh, build up its case for expenditures. And we have a case here, Taglianetti versus United States. If you Google it, it usually comes right up um, under uh, Justia law, I believe. The defendant's argument in these cases typically is that the government failed to establish opening and closing net worth figures with accuracy. And um, this was a case decided by the First Circuit. The First Circuit held that the IRS must only establish an opening and closing net worth with reasonable accuracy. So it kind of gives um, the government a little bit of wiggle room uh, because it doesn't require as um, as uh, solid a um, you know a certainty as one might otherwise think. It's only a reasonable certainty with which the government has to establish opening and closing net worth. The way the court analyzed this was that <clears throat> although the amount may not have been established with the precision 
um, that was, um, you know, expected. Uh, what was established was that the net worth at both the beginning and at the end of the prosecution was about the same. As long as there wasn't a decrease, then the expenditures could not have been funded by drawing down previous assets. Um, opening and closing net worth is significant in a comparative or a relative sense, but not in an absolute sense. That's pretty much the takeaway. Um, well, now we get to bank deposits and cash expenditures uh, method. Uh, we have a little bit of time, uh, so I'm going to cover this uh, briefly. This is a hybrid method. Um, we've uh, pretty much talked about both already, um, and that's because it involves two different methods that have been rolled together into one. It assumes that deposits into the defendant's bank account and expenditures made by the defendant are taxable unless they came from a non-taxable source. Uh, there are two uh, chief advantages to using this method. The first is that the government uh, need not establish opening and closing net worth, uh, which will certainly give them a sigh of relief. The government needs to only produce sufficient evidence for a reasonable juror to find fraud, as opposed to any of the classic fraud badges, uh, such as hidden accounts or duplicate uh, books. Uh, and this is the application of the method. Um, in this case of U.S. versus Esser, there were three tax years in question. The government charged defendant under Section 7201. In bank deposit cases, it's customary for the government to introduce deposit slips. However, in this case, it was impossible to introduce deposit slips due to their poor quality, unreliability, and unavailability. Instead, the government introduced bank statements and passbooks as um, the most reliable evidence available. Uh, the defendant argued that the bank deposits theory required an analysis of bank deposit items themselves. The government had a duty to specifically identify and analyze those deposit slips and that the failure to do so um, was uh, fatal and should lead to the dismissal of the case. The court um, came back by saying no. Um, this is a question for the jury, not one where uh, the court can uh, unilaterally dismiss it. It's up to the jury to decide whether there was satisfactory proof of, de of deposits. Uh, there's no one legally required method. If the jury thinks that it's uh, adequate, that's fine and uh, and dandy. The hey, Mike. Sec yep, Jason. I apologize, but we are just about out of time. I know there's more to cover, but we are unfortunately out of the allotted time for today's presentation. So if there are any concluding thoughts or anything that you want to cover really quickly, now is the time to do so. Excellent. Thanks for uh, letting me know, Jason. I'm going to, um, well, there's other um, methods as well, percentage markup method. Um, I want to just get right. Uh, there's also the overstated deductions. Uh, you can view these at your leisure. And um, essentially, uh, there is what's called appellate review, uh, which I referred to a little bit earlier. Um, if a defendant is convicted, questions of um, evidentiary sufficiency are evaluated um, in an appellate court. And um, it's evaluated under a standard that views them in a light most favorable to uh, upholding the conviction. 
the theory here is, or the policy that drives this is that having expended all these resources, courts don't want to undo the verdict and try the case a second time. Um, and so, in other words, if a jury convicts, the taxpayer must prove on appeal that the evidence was virtually laughably inadequate and that no reasonable juror could have possibly voted to convict based on such proof. Um, that's essentially the standard, and it's a very high standard that uh, the defense must meet. That's why in a lot of these cases that are undertaken by the appellate courts, um, they oftentimes affirm the conviction. However, sometimes they might find that there were mistakes made at the trial level, but they might find that those um, mistakes were not enough to alter the outcome of the case. And in that case, they might say that it was harmless error. And the worst uh, situation as a defense attorney is to get an opinion from an appellate judge that says, yeah, the trial court messed up, and yeah, some of those mistakes were pretty um, large, but they wouldn't have impacted the jury's um, decision. And so, you know, one can uh, begin to say, well, how can you assume as the appellate judge that it wouldn't have impacted the jury's uh, mind in deliberations? But nonetheless, uh, that's part of our law and uh, harmless error um, is part of, uh, you know, the life of a uh, criminal defense attorney and uh, something that we oftentimes get used to. So it was an absolute pleasure to uh, introduce to you this presentation. Uh, I'm sorry that we didn't get to everything that was in here, but again, there was a lot of information. I certainly encourage you to um, contact me if you have any further uh, questions. Um, I believe that my contact information is contained on the, um, on the page that was set up for this webinar. Uh, but if it isn't, uh, you can find me at uh, my website, which is deblisslaw.com. Uh, send me an email, shoot me a, um, you know, a message on LinkedIn, or even give me a call. My uh, door is always open. All right, Mike, thank you so much for presenting today. I'll wrap up quickly because we've gone over time. Uh, it's a pleasure having you present for the last hour and a half, and I see a lot of great feedback coming in from the questions panel. Everyone will have the opportunity to provide a full webinar evaluation. Everyone here for CPE credit will have that issued by the end of the day today, and that'll be available along with an archived recording of the webinar and a copy of the handouts. CE credit will be registered with the IRS at a later date. Thank you all so much for your time and attendance. Mike, thank you so much for presenting. We hope you all have a great rest of the day and hope to see you all on future webinars.